Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name is Amy, and together with my husband, Johnny, we lead the church here in Nottingham, England. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And if we can help you in any way at all, feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. Wow, well, thank you. Gosh, it's, uh, it's good to be together today. I've... This whole season for us has been really mixed, as it probably has been for you. It's been up and down. But today I just find myself just filled with hope. I feel uh, inwardly, at least, buoyant. And I really pray, my prayer this morning is that um, something of what God in these last couple of days has been doing in me in terms of hope, that it would be released uh, to you. And I'm not saying there aren't harder days to come. Uh, we haven't done homeschool today yet, so we'll see how things go. But I do feel uh, that just we, this is a moment where God just wants to help us turn a corner together and, and begin to look forward. And I want to speak into that this morning. And just um, one of the gifts, I know for some over the, um, the course of the last couple of months has just been the, the opportunity to double down and really get the hours of uh, Netflix uh, in. And uh, I, I, I'm not a massive TV watcher unless it comes to sports, in which Amy would remind uh, me uh, that I do like to watch a lot of TV. But actually, I came across this documentary which ticks, ticked all the boxes, which is the, called The Last Dance. And some of you will have seen it. It's been um, really one of the things that I think has has been fairly widely watched over the last couple of months or so. And the documentary concerns Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. It's particularly focusing on Michael Jordan, who was, as many people consider, the greatest basketballer. In fact, one of the greatest American sportsmen. Some would say the greatest sportsmen of all time. And Jordan, along with his Chicago Bulls, uh, won six championships. He took the Bulls from essentially obscurity to becoming uh, the best, the most... Um, successful basketball team of, at least at that point, of all time. And it's a fascinating insight into the mind of a leader, an elite sports person. And it's fascinating because you really see through the documentary just how driven Jordan is and how his drive, his inner compulsion to win almost at all costs, causes him to be somebody who's quite, in some ways, for his teammates, quite difficult to live with, quite difficult to be around. And as I was reflecting on Jordan and perhaps what I could learn and maybe what I could steer clear of in his life, I was just reminded, I thought, I was, I was, I thought to myself, you know, what is it that causes in Jordan this drivenness, this ability to, to do great things and to man, demand great things of others? Is it not his singular focus, his crystal clear vision? What Jordan had, what Michael Jordan had, and I, I would presume still has, is this singularity of focus, this clear sight. Michael Jordan could see. He could see, he could envision a future in which he and his bulls were holding up the NBA championship, and he saw that come into focus in reality six times. His success began with seeing. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that the goal of the Christian life is success in that framework. Some of us may experience success of that kind in our lives. Others, most, will not. 
But I do think there's a profound truth here, which is that living the Christian life actually begins with the eyes. It begins with seeing. And I want us to look back, because we talk about seeing. I want us to look back to the beginning of the year. And you see, we began this year as a church with this strong sense that God was calling us to two different things as a community. At least Amy and I carried this, that he was calling us firstly to go deeper in prayer. And secondly, he was calling us to go deeper in holiness. And so on the back of that, we began a series in early January on the saints, looking at the lives of different Christians uh, throughout history and asking the question, what can we learn from these people about what it means to be holy? And what I think we gathered was that holiness isn't just about being set apart, although that is a part of holiness. It's one of the manifestations of it. But it's more about being given over. It's about being consecrated or devoted toward God in a profound way. And then at the start of Lent, we began a teaching series looking at prayer, this sort of second focus for 2020 to look at prayer. And we began teaching through the Lord's Prayer because we had this sense that as we went through this ancient prayer, Jesus was going to teach us to pray. And halfway through, we hadn't really got very far through at all. We had this experience of COVID-19 and lockdown began. And, and I guess we pivoted really at that moment. And the series on prayer became a series on will, the wilderness and how to feed and feast on God in the midst of the wilderness. And that worked well because the Lord's Prayer is full of imagery drawn from Israel's experience of the wilderness. Give us today our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. These are wilderness themes and they're also prayer themes. And that's really the framework that we've been having ever since, looking at what it means to survive and thrive in the wilderness. As I was reflecting on this, I was reminded that both holiness and prayer fundamentally are about seeing. They're about a vision of God. The point of holiness is not so that God might pat us on the back and saying, look, there you go. Haven't you done well? The point of holiness is always so that people could see God through us. The point of prayer is to see him, is to be near him and to be with him. I was chuckling to myself just the other day as I considered the quantity, the sheer number of pastors that began 2020 with a sermon entitled 2020 Vision. 2020 perspective, and, and many of us were thinking along those lines, thinking about how this is going to be year, the year where God allowed us to see our visions becoming reality, seeing perfectly, seeing in 2020 vision. How about how our plans were going to be laid for the next decade in this year? How funny. God likes a joke. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, as somebody said. But what if there was something in it? My sense is that there was that in this time, in this unique moment, what God is actually trying to give to his church is the gift of sight. But not the sight that comes from visionary dreaming or strategic planning. Though there is a place for that and there will be a moment for that. But the sight that comes from seeing him, from turning our attention to him and allowing him to wash our eyes in his presence. Allowing him to help us see anew. And today I want us to pivot as it were, to pivot from looking around us at the wilderness and asking the question, how can we thrive in this moment, to looking ahead, beginning to look ahead. And I think that's profoundly important we do that because Pentecost is next week. And Pentecost is a moment in the church of profound hope. And I want us to look forward in hope because I believe that what God has planned for us is that he wants to baptize us in his spirit. He wants to baptize us in himself. 
And we are to prepare for it. And we prepare for it by looking down the road at what it might mean. And we ask him to do it. And we ask him to begin with our sight. And today I want to look at one of the most profoundly important aspects of the Christian life that impacts and informs what it means for us to see. And it is the area of hope. Hope? I hear you cry. Hope? You've got to be kidding, Johnny, at the moment. My hope is that my children would be able to go back to school after half term. I'm not thinking down the stretch, Johnny. Hope. You may think, hope, Johnny. Hope at the moment is a luxury item. Something perhaps we can come up and think about a little bit more when our kids are back at school. Or maybe when we have certainty about what our job is going to look like. Or whether indeed we're going to have a job after lockdown. Certainty about our finances. Certainty about the status of our marriage. Maybe hope is something we can look at, we think, when we've begun to process the grief that we're drenched in at the moment. But you see, for the Christian, hope is never intended to be a luxury item. Hope is what we do. Hope is who we are. We are in every circumstance to be the people of hope. Hope is one of the big three. The big three. No, I'm not talking about Pippin, Rodman and Jordan. I'm not talking about Man City, Man City or Man City. I'm talking about faith, hope and love. They're the big three. Faith, the posture that is to characterize Christians at all times and all places. The posture of confidence and trust, reliance on God in all circumstances. That is faith. Love, which is to color our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Unconditional commitment to the benefit and the prospering of somebody else. That's love. We're to love God and we're to love another. And then hope. Hope is a little different. Hope is faith and love projected into the future. Hope is imagining the future in confidence because of who God is with love. That is what hope is. It depends on faith. It's drenched in love. Hope says, because I trust that God is who he says he is, therefore I believe that in the future the end will be good because he is a good God. Hope refuses to calculate the future without first factoring in the goodness and the love of God. Hope isn't what we land in. If we just add up the logic of the natural order of things, hope is not the same as optimism. Hope is heaven's perspective. Hope is heaven's perspective. And it cannot be found without heaven's help. Hope doesn't say what's the best possible outcome in this situation? What's the rational outcome? Where does logic lead us? Hope says what might be possible in a world in which God is active, Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty. And so it is a unique calling of the church to carry hope, to look to the future in hope and to remind the world of hope, to remind the world that whatever it is that we see around us, there is a future whose name is Jesus. Whatever chaos we see, the future is better than any of us could dare to dream or imagine. Not because there aren't challenges or because at times we won't feel totally overwhelmed, but because there is a God who's bigger than any of those challenges 
And so hope is a sacred task. Hope asks, what might be possible in my heart? What might be possible with my sin patterns, my addictions? What might be possible in my marriage? What might be possible in my work life? What might be possible in my family? What might be possible in my city? With my neighbors? If God is who he says he is. And hope is what we need now. Hope is what we need. And it's also what God's people needed at the time of Elijah. It's Elisha, sorry. It's what God's people have needed for time immemorial. And what we pick up in the story that was beautifully read to us in 2 Kings is this, this fact that the context is that Israel was on a downward slide. You see, they'd had the greatest kings already. Their best days were behind them. King David and after him, King Solomon had led them. And after it, we, we see a succession of bad kings who lead badly and lead them into chaos and decline. And the decline is entrenched at this point. And actually in these chapters, it's fascinating that the names of the kings are rarely mentioned. Instead, we hear the names of the prophets, Samuel, then Elijah, and now Elisha. God raises up a series of prophets to speak truth to power. The whole purpose and the reason for these prophets is we come into the age of prophets. is because the leaders of Israel have failed. You don't need prophets if we're being governed well. But at this moment, prophets were necessary. And the particular context, that's the general picture, the particular context here is one of lockdown. Uh, the, the Samaria, which was the, the city that sort of headquartered, the capital city, if you like, of Israel, is in lockdown because there's a foreign army surrounding it. And this situation was impacting every single part of life in lockdown. There was famine Uh, It says there was a great famine in the city. The supply chains were broken. There was inflation. It says that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. What a funny, funny phrase. A donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. Now, the donkey's head, just for a bit of background, if you like this kind of thing, would have been the least desirable thing imaginable uh, for food. Now, that doesn't require much imagination, actually, to think of that. Yet here we see it selling for an exorbitant cost. This is hyperinflation. This is like the Depression after 1929. The second item mentioned here is literally, in the the original language, it's dove's dung. Now, it it may really be pigeon manure that people are forced to eat. In other words, what we see is hyperinflation and a famine. And we also see cannibalism. I'm not going to go into detail on this. It is so desperate a situation. It's too desperate even for us to contemplate. And finally, we see leadership crises. We see a failure of leadership. While the king should be dealing with the crisis, we see him moving out, seeking to blame others. He comes to Elisha, seeking to blame him. By the way, weak leaders always seek to, to blame people outside of their inner circle. And Elisha is the focus of the blame here. And we can learn a lot about hope from this story. I want to say two things as you're tracking with me in this story. First thing I want to say about hope is that hope sees differently. 
Hope sees differently. We have two examples of a response to this disaster here. The first example is the example of the king. It says here uh, in verse 30, when the king heard the woman's words, this is about the cannibalism, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked and they saw that under his robes he had sackcloth on his body. He said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. This is what I said about blame. You see, the king looks around him. He sees what is, in reality, a tremendous crisis. He wasn't wrong to see crisis. He wasn't wrong to see the evil around him, the disaster around him. But the point about the king is that that was all he saw. And in his desperation, he lost hope. He, in one sense, his response is entirely understandable on a human level. But all he can see is starvation, and that's the issue. That he can't see beyond the starvation. He can't see beyond the chaos. He can't see beyond the crisis. And that is his failure. But when the same data points are presented to the prophet, what comes out of his heart and his mind is a completely different response. While the king says, this disaster is from the Lord, Elisha says, no, this deliverance is from the Lord. Do you see the difference? Same data points, same entry points, if you like, but a completely different output. The king says this disaster is from the Lord, blaming Elisha, putting the responsibility on God. Elisha says, no, this deliverance is from the Lord. You don't have hope. You can't see heaven's perspective yet, king, because you're looking around you. You're not looking above you or beyond you. Elisha's eyes are focused above him. The king's eyes are focused only on the disaster. Notice this. Elisha doesn't fail to see the situation about him. He's just not fixated on it. Hope never denies the reality of the pain, brokenness, sin, or evil in the world. Hope just refuses, point blank, to let them have the last word. Elisha's eyes and ears are set to the frequency of heaven. And this is what he says in response to the king. Hear the word of the Lord. This is chapter 7, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a seer of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, what he's prophesying is deliverance. What he's prophesying is a reversal of the hyperinflation cycle. The economic damage in a day to be undone and a release of the pressure on the people. He sees in hope. The difference between hope and hopelessness is sight. That's the difference. Now the situation we face at the moment is one in which our sight is being tested. We're all being tested in ways that perhaps some of us have never been tested before. Many of us are experiencing grief, intense grief. I know that. Some of us in these weeks particularly are experiencing significant mental health crises. There will be tension and strain on every relationship. Your relationship with your children, with the parents or grandparents you can't see, relationships between uh, marriages or in other relationships, we will be seeing tension. This is a time of testing. And yet hope is what we need in times of testing because hope releases different reality for us. 
I was reading uh, just this week one of my favorite authors, Annie Dillard. I just want a, a, a brief quote from one of her works called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. If, if you enjoy reading, you might enjoy this. She says, it is still the first week in January and I've got great plans. Do you remember that? Do you remember that moment? The first week in January when you had great plans? Maybe Annie wrote this for us. I've been thinking about seeing. There were lots of things to see. Unwrapped gifts and free surprises. The world is fairly studded and strewn with pennies cast broadside from a generous hand. But, and this is the point, who gets excited by a mere penny? If you follow one arrow, if you crouch motionless on a bank to watch a tremulous ripple thrill on the water and are rewarded by the sight of a muskrat kit paddling from its den, will you count that sight a chip of copper only and go your rueful way? It is dire poverty indeed when a man is so malnourished and fatigued that he won't stoop to pick up a penny. But if you cultivate a healthy poverty and simplicity, so that finding a penny will literally make your day. Then, since the world is in fact planted in pennies, you have with your poverty bought a lifetime of days. It is that simple. What you see is what you get. Do you see that? She's speaking into the human condition. Even in this moment of lockdown, there are pennies. There, there are miracles strewn across on the floor. You know, the miracle for me is the miracle of having time with my children, having time with Amy, having opportunity to be invested in their lives. I've seen it as a challenge. It has been a great challenge, but it is a miracle. And unless I welcome it as such, I won't be able to be nourished and enriched by it. And it won't change my seeing. We have to begin to see God in the small things. And only then will we be able to receive him in the great things. We wonder, why is he not doing the great miracles we long for him to do? Is it not partly because we're not seeing the small miracles around us that he's already doing? And as we welcome the small miracles, so we will be released into sharing in the big miracles for our city. Hope sees differently. And our job as followers is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in the main and the plain, in the daily acts, in the, in the olive shoots, in the beginnings. Hope sees differently. Second, hope speaks differently. Because hope sees differently, so we can speak differently. People of Jesus are people of hope. There's people that speak Hope. And what we have to understand as believers and followers of Christ, and I believe that we've almost entirely lost this paradigm in our world because we've been uh, too influenced by the Greeks who thought that everything that was powerful happened in the mind. But the Hebrews knew that what happened in your mind was of some value, but what was far more powerful is what you spoke with your mouth. Hope speaks different realities. Do you understand how much weight your words have? You know that the, the point of what happens in Genesis 1 where God speaks reality into being with a word is to encourage us that our words have weight. That just as God speaks the world into being through words, just as Jesus speaks healing and so it is done, so the people of God have the power to speak words, to speak with their words, new realities into existence. We have the power of blessing or cursing in our mouths. We have the power of life or death on our lips. 
And it is time for us to take up this power, the power of hope with our words. I've been touched by the Holy Spirit in the last few days. I had a, uh, a conversation. I didn't have a conversation. I was on a webinar. <laughs> I was watching a screen. Am I not always watching a screen <laughs> in these days? I was watching a screen in which a friend was sharing about his prayer life. And I just, as I was hearing him speak about his prayer life, I was reminded that there was not a lot of difference between his prayer life and my prayer life. There was one key difference. He believed that in his prayers, he was being heard by God. And I felt the Spirit of God say to me, Johnny, you're not taking your prayers seriously enough. You don't believe that your words have weight. You need to understand, Johnny, that your words matter to me. When you pray, I'm hearing you. Your words are shaping reality. And if you believe that, they would shape reality even more profoundly. Our words have weight. Our words have weight before God. You know that whenever, you know that whether we pray or not, Jesus is praying. But the scripture says that when we pray, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is shaping our prayers. That we activate the prayer of the Holy Spirit when we pray. Our words have weight. And the person of hope knows that their words have weight and they pray in hope. They pray in faith and they pray in hope with love. But also our words have weight, not just in prayer, but in conversation. I've been again challenged by the Spirit of God in these days. I've been reminded of how many conversations I'm having with neighbors, colleagues, other people around me, perhaps. Uh, and I have opportunities uh, as they bring up and as I bring up the realities of life and the challenges. I have an opportunity. I'm going to respond. And honestly, nine times out of ten, being really honest, it might even be more than nine times out of ten, I respond in kind. I empathize. I commiserate. Church, there's a place for empathy. It has its place. There's a place for commiseration. But I want to say empathy sits beneath hope on the Christian uh, pyramid of virtues. There is a moment for hope. This is a moment for hope. To say to my, how profoundly powerful would it be to empathize but then to give hope? Even these three words, I've just felt like the Spirit of God give me these three words for us as a church. Let me arm you with three words that are going to change the atmosphere in your neighborhood, in your friendships. Here they are. I have hope. Oh, I feel, isn't it so, your friend comes to you and says, isn't it so difficult? You say, yes, it's so difficult. Gosh, it must be really difficult for you walking through this in this way. Oh, that's so hard. I have hope. I have hope for you. I have hope for this situation. I have hope. And they may even at that moment give you an opportunity to share the reason for your hope. I have hope. You know, and the, the problem, I think, in the church is that we've allowed the world, particularly, I think, British culture, to shape the way we think about hope. Because in our world, and I, I give George White credit for this, in our world, uh, I think too often we, we begin to think as if hope is inherently shallow. We begin to uh, imagine that I think we've begun to allow the culture to shape our understanding of hope. That if we're, if we're leading in hope, it must therefore be trite or shallow. And, and the really deep things in the world, well, they're, they're, they're things of grief and sorrow. Now, there is such a thing as deep sorrow, which goes to God in lament. And that is true. But also, hope is deep. Hope is more courageous than cynicism. 
And so so much we've allowed people to steal our voice, the voice of hope, because we've allowed them to set the terms of the conversation. And what I'm here to tell us today is there's nothing deeper, more courageous in the midst of suffering, alongside lament as hope. Having the courage to hold on to hope and to speak hope in love, in humility, but to speak hope. Elisha's words name a reality that is coming. Do they create it? Perhaps. We'll never know. As I come into land, what is to come? What is the reality to come for Elisha? What is the reality to come for us? The reality is deliverance. The Arameans who've been surrounding the city simply disappear overnight. And in the end, it wasn't any human strategy that did it. It was the activity of God. We read that uh, there was a sound in the camp of horses and chariots. And the Arameans, felt they fled in terror. And what happens is, uh, there's a whole sermon in this, by the way. But what happens is that uh, a group of lepers... Four lepers who were hanging around the city gate decide to go and check out in sheer desperation and hunger for what's, to see what's going on in the Aramean camp. And when they arrive there, they see God's deliverance. This should have been the king's job, by the way. But he forfeited the honor that was due to him because he had lost hope. And the honor instead goes to these lepers. And I want to say today there is honor for the church going forward in this season. But only, only if we're willing to hold on and share hope. Instead, what we see is that the lepers arrive in the camp. They find no one is there. And this most incredible thing happens. They say this, if I can find it. There, verse 9 of chapter 7, they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. I love that. This is a day of good news. Good news. Ring any bells? This word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is so closely related to the word gospel. It's the feminine uh, uh, version of that word. Good news, gospel. We have gospel to share with the city. We must, we simply must go and share this good news of hope for the city. We can't be found here just enjoying it and keeping it to ourselves. How often does the deliverance of God happen in just this way? How often is it when the human seems, that when the situation seems desperate, so desperate from a human perspective that God moves? God changes what seems in human terms to be utterly hopeless. Then and only then, he brings about his deliverance in a way that manifests most glory for him. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Just the right time, when we were still powerless. God came in Christ and he died for the ungodly. Romans 5 Verse 6, this is the gospel, this is the good news, this is the declaration that we have in our hearts for the city. And it is a declaration of hope that we, desperate lepers though we are, are here to declare that through the cross and resurrection of Christ, God has come close to every person, every man, woman and child who would receive him, that if they would receive him, By faith, grace in grace, 
free of charge, that their lives would be transformed as they receive him. That every person might receive not just strength for today, but bright hope for tomorrow. Hope not that death will be averted, averted, because after all, we need to be reminded, none of us gets out of life alive. That is not the Christian hope. But that death is not the end of the great drama that is my life and that is your life. That there is an act to come beyond death, beyond viruses, beyond lockdown, beyond ICU, beyond ventilators, beyond grief, beyond sorrow, beyond suicide, beyond marital crises, beyond economic meltdowns, famines, wars, bloodshed. That there is a power more powerful than death. It is the power of love. It is the love of God displayed in the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is the good news that we lepers have to declare to the city. And we like lepers must now say to one another, this is a day of good news. And we are keeping it to ourselves. Let us no longer keep this to ourselves. Trinity Church, share this hope. See according to to this hope. Share this hope with your lips. To see hope, to speak hope, to speak hope. This is our sacred task. Don't keep it to yourselves. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to some of our teaching here at Trinity. We hope it's blessed you. If you live in the city or live outside of Nottingham and want to connect more with the church, check out some of our practices and pathways on our website. We call them one, few, company, and many. We're passionate about encountering Jesus, becoming like him, and doing the things that he did, both individually and in our lives together, so that we may see the church on fire and the city come alive. You can find these on our website under the Connect tab. Thanks for listening.